Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. As we dive further into Exodus, if you have questions or you want to see things about Exodus or other sermon series or other podcasts, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. So Exodus 2, here we go, right? Right on. Verse 1 through 3. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that he was a fine child. and She hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. We know where this is going, don't we? Yes, we do. And they are also known for their blue jeans. Levi's. The House of Levi. The House of Levi. Quite good at making blue jeans. (laughs) So one of the things I want to talk about in this episode, and again, we're we're digging deep here. These are the things that will never make it in a sermon, not because they're not interesting or helpful to understanding the scriptures, but we only have so much time. There's just never enough time. There's never enough time for me or anyone else, (laughs) mostly me. So one of the things that I want to just chat about here. It's because you get down in the reeds. I mean the weeds. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really good dorky joke that I like. Yeah, Yeah, you got me off guard. I figured you would like it. That's solid. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) So one of the common things that happened in the Middle East is there's this story of the usurper who comes from the water and eventually becomes king. And what's interesting is there's an individual who's a few centuries before Moses. This is an Akkadian tale called Sargon the Great. And let me just tell you this story, uh, and you can tell me if you hear any similarities here. Sargon is born in secret into a family which has apparently been at home in an upland country. So they're outsiders living in a country they're not supposed to be in, per se. His birthplace is near the Euphrates, and his mother, to keep him alive, throws him in a reed ark and tosses him in the water. And as he floats along, he's eventually found by someone who happens to be a king, and this person raises him to be the son uh, of the king. Now, no one knows exactly what's going on here, but eventually what happens is Sargon is adopted into this family, and then lo and behold, we find out that the king who was afraid of a usurper coming from his own family has adopted the usurper, and eventually Sargon wipes out the king and becomes the king. Sound familiar? It does. It's got some, got some tones to it. So you can understand why this might trouble some scholars. You know, the more and more we've dug in the Middle East, we find these things occasionally that seem to match very closely to something we read in the Bible. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is sometimes especially with young adults and college students that I've worked with over the years, they'll go to college and they'll be forced to read one of these documents from a professor or someone or, or a classmate who's like, well, I can't believe that you believe the Bible. It's, there's no way it's real because here. And they hand an article yeah. and they read this and they're like, when was this written? They're like, well, this is written 400 years before Moses was even born. You know, and, and then people go, oh, did the Bible just steal this story? And so I want to just point out there. There's enough similarity with some of these stories in the ancient world 
that it does seem like you could make the case that the Bible is borrowing concepts or tropes from other places. What is more interesting to me, however, and I've, I've heard most of these over the years, there are very few stories that I've learned at this point that surprise me because I've, I, you know, I, I've struggled with my faith more so when I was a little younger, but I, I really struggled with some of this seems similar to other stories. You know, yeah. the Egyptian creation narrative is very interestingly connected to Genesis 1 through 11. Not close enough to say that it's a copy, but there's a, there's a connection there. It's very close to the Babylonian story, which is interesting. So there's all these little interesting connections that if I was not putting my faith completely in God, I might say, well, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. God's just stealing ideas. And that's what college students usually come back and tell us. Like, you're a liar. You didn't tell me that this is out there. Well, first of all, we don't know all of the things that are out there. We're not that smart. We, we, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we want to say and do, we can't know everything. But what I have found is every time that a story like this seems to be somewhat comparative, there is always major differences to the Bible version that makes us stop and read the differences and then go, what is, what's really happening here? So I don't believe that this story didn't happen. Like that's where some scholars take this, right? I mean, they take it and they say, well, since this other story exists, Sargon the Great and Moses is like that, they clearly just stole the story, they made it up, and then that's why Moses is so great. But none of this really happened. There's a lot of reasons why that doesn't make any sense. If that didn't make, you know, if that made sense, uh, just to take it and throw it all away, then you're suggesting maybe Moses didn't exist or Pharaoh didn't really, sorry, have the issue situation with, with Moses. Like there's nothing going on there. I, I don't buy that. I, I believe this story absolutely happened. What's interesting to me is that there's a there's a close connection to other stories, which tells me we need to read those other stories, think about them, and then go, what's different about them? In this case, it's not the king who finds the baby. It's the daughter. And the daughter, based on verse 22 that we just read in chapter 1, was told to go kill the baby. So she's clearly rebelling against her dad. That's an interesting detail that's totally different. And I think the fact that there's enough of those differences that are are scandalous. Yeah. A daughter finding it, a baby in the, the water, that, that's scandalous enough that nobody would have written that story unless it was true. So then I kind of think maybe, just maybe, some of these other stories were out there to try to confuse us later on and to make us doubt the Bible. I think that would be a better scenario, you know, that, that all these other stories started popping up, whether that's because of influence from other beings or whether it's uh, you know, other stories that happened that just so happened to be somewhat connected. And then later on, people read them and go, whoa, 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 there's a huge connection. And God's going, no, 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 just stop and read what I'm telling you. Just think really closely about it and kind of go from there. Does that make sense? Yeah, focus in and find what is true, you know, and, and dig dig a little deeper. It's good to have things that challenge us a little bit. And, yes. And, and push back on our own uh, thinking or cause us to ask those questions. I mean, Think of how healthy it's been for you over the years to wrestle those things through, and it's it's made you the man you are. And every time I've started to wrestle, and this is really helpful, and I wanted to definitely put this in the podcast, and I, and I think I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. One of my professors said that he has a theological icebox. Every time that he hears something that doesn't jive with what he thinks Scripture is supposed to say, he sticks it in the icebox. And what ends up happening is either they find something that makes the thing that was said wrong— so then it comes out of the, he pulls this thing out of the icebox and it's, it doesn't matter. So it just kind of tosses it or more information is found out about it. That starts to make it make sense in a way that doesn't wreck his faith. 
puts some shape to it. And that was so helpful for me. So every time that I'm digging, and you know me, I dig and do all kinds of crazy reading and weird things. Like I'm reading texts that nobody cares about, and I'm I'm searching and searching and searching, and I'm listening to Bible podcasts all the time, and I'm trying to just always be ahead of it, and I try to be on top of it. That's why I have so much time in a sermon that I've got to, I've got to use. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But in the middle of that, my my the beauty of all of that is this, and this is really... So the theological icebox is important, but the most important thing is I have never fallen less in love with the Bible when I learn these things. Yeah, that cool. So I'm not afraid of the questions. And so if you hear something or you're thinking something and you're going, man, I'd really love to talk to someone about that. Welcome. Like, let's chat because there's probably a good amount of information out there that you just don't know about that that actually takes this idea directly on. So, I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, I'm looking over an article right now about this. There are a couple of different dissertations and multiple major articles peer-reviewed and everything else from 1976 on that directly deal with this Sargon the Great versus Moses narrative. It's not a new concept. This is old. But when you hear it in a college, you think, well, I've never heard this before. This must be brand new. It's, yeah, so it's startling. It's cutting-edge yeah. research. And we're like, no, it's this has been out for a couple hundred years at this point, and it's been dealt with already in the scholarship, which is why sometimes pastors don't feel like they need to bring it all into the sermon because we're just wasting time to tell you something that doesn't really matter. Yeah, why would we, fo- why would we focus on telling you something that's irrelevant to, <laughs> to the thing? But it does become relevant in a, in a collegiate arena where you're going, okay, what do I do with this? Yes. So I think the moral of the story is we are aware of some of these things. When we're not aware, there are articles that, that can help you find the answers. And if you need help finding those, you know, I can, I can point you in those directions and we can, we can get there. But it does open up a concept, right? So if there's this usurper from the water, it's kind of this trope that's throughout the ancient world. I thought it'd be funny if we just kind of thought through what are some of the common tropes today? Because this might actually even help people understand why that's foolish to think that the Sargon the Great story is the exact same as Moses because, it, first of all, they're not the same. But second, tropes are common throughout all of history, right? So what are a couple of tropes that you're thinking of? Well, I mean, y- you even use the example of a dirty cop sure. or something. That that idea of that person or... Uh, well, you see him in the movie. Right. And I, you, you, you immediately suspect of them, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Batman years ago you know, the Michael Keaton, the first one that kind of like really took off and got big as far as big movies go, you know, and there's these two really overweight cops with shirts that are kind of greasy. They have really greasy hair. They just look kind of slimy and they're like getting money from somewhere. And you're like, okay, I know exactly what that is. These are dirty cops, right? Except in this money, they're, they're clearly bad people (laughs) doing their thing. I think we've seen, you know, a number of other tropes in the last few years. (laughs) You know, I, I added the shady car salesman. You just immediately think of that, and car salesman has that you know that negative connotation or that shadiness to it. You just I've been called a car salesman when I'm preaching. That's helpful. <laughs> I appreciate that. I've also been called a sneaky politician. Right? That I don't say quite what I want to say, but I'm saying it in such a nice way that you think, oh, that's not that bad. And yeah, am I going out of bounds here by saying, uh, how about a wily coyote? <laughs> <laughs> I just think that he's got way more than nine lives. So I don't know what he's doing, but he's got to keep it up. Yeah, Wiley Coyote's fantastic, right? When, and, and, and if you think of a coyote, you're going to think of Wiley. <laughs> and they are. They are Wiley. They eat the hens and everything else. <laughs> you know, one of the tropes that drives me crazy is the, the immoral pastor. Yeah. 
And in fairness, there have been a bunch of guys that have made major mistakes. Yeah, I was just telling you about one recently. Sure. A mega church pastor that went down. And, and we read them and we're brokenhearted. And, yeah. I, and I don't know about you, but I also get a little scared that then our name somehow got tarnished, even though we didn't do yeah. anything. Well, yeah, guilty by association kind of Yeah. Thing. So the amount of times that I've, I've talked to someone and they find out I'm a pastor and I watch the conversation just end right before my eyes. You yeah. know, they're trying to find a way out or they're looking at the ground like, oh, you know. No, usually it's the, uh, the you can tell that they're thinking really quick. There's this there's an intensity of their eyes. What did I just say to him? How did I say it? Oh, you know, am I going to die? Yeah. You know, am I going to be struck by lightning right here? How yeah. many cuss words have I used <laughs> in this conversation? What so am I going to need to apologize for quickly? <laughs> Yeah, it's common. I, one of the ones that I heard years ago was the creepy pastor that they just think all of us are creepy. And so there was a guy who was working out at a gym and someone's like, hey, can you go over and give me a spot? And he's like, give him a spot. And afterward, they're like talking and he's like, so what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. He's like, you don't seem creepy enough to be a pastor. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? I was like, they're always like lurking in the shadows. And he's like, I don't know a single pastor who's like that. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so one of the things too is that a lot of times the tropes that we talk about aren't even close to accurate, yeah. but yet it's... It's funny. So when you hear, you know, things out there and someone says, oh, you're a blank. That's what that means. I know you're, yeah. that's what you are. No, the tropes don't, they don't work. They don't fit exactly right. So the one other thing we wanted to talk about is what are some other usurpers? What are some other people in the Bible that are, or, or elsewhere throughout the, throughout history of the world who have no power, no authority, and by some circumstance, they find their way to suddenly toppling a major kingdom or a, or a powerful group, right? Moses is the first one here that we really think about. This kid that's born should be dead, gets tossed into, a, into the river, and then Pharaoh's daughter finds him. You know, yeah. we, we think by chance, but yet it seems clear that God's behind the whole thing. And then this, this kid who Pharaoh's clearly nervous about the Israelites, but he has no idea how nervous he needs to be because that kid down the hallway is actually the one who's going to lead the people out. Yeah. That's really cool. So what are some other ones like that? Well, we've got, you know, Athaliah. Remember Second Kings? We've got the mother of King Ahaziah. Yeah. Who's uh, this evil woman who, you know, when, when her son dies, she quickly uh, takes the throne and destroys all the royal heirs it tries. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. No. That's not good at not, all. Not a nice lady. She's not. She grabs power and she goes with it. And what's crazy about that story is there's multiple usurpers, right? Because one of the children survives because a priest hides him, right? And then all of a sudden brings him to the throne and you're going, what? Yeah. It's a double switch. Yeah. Double no agent. Kidding. What else you got? There's some others. Oh, Absalom. You know, and. Yeah. What's he do? He goes out the gate. Oh, you know. Hey, Dad. I'll be the one providing some wisdom out here. Oh. The king's not answering you? Oh, yeah. you know, I'm sorry. Let me do that for you. It's such what, a great one. Yeah. What and a what, slime ball. Yeah, what a heartbreaking one for David, you know. I've been meaning to talk to you about this. Uh, part of the reason why I greet on Sunday mornings is I want to make sure that people understand that I, <laughs> I'm i taking your throne. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But I have heard stupid My comments. Throne. I haven't found I, it I, yet. I've heard all these dumb comments like that, like, well, I just trying to knock Mark off his perch. I'm like, we're here to work together. This has nothing to do. I have no desire to like knock somebody off. Yeah. As if I wouldn't be the quickest one to go here. Have it. <laughs> yeah. You're exactly. Yeah. You're, you're like the worst type of King just doesn't really care about his name and doesn't care about the title and doesn't want the throne. Uh, one of the ones that I always think about is Ehud, right? This left-handed uh, judge, this guy who sneaks into the palace of the King and, 
gives a bunch of money to the king and then he says, I have a secret word for you. And the king says, oh, everyone, clear out so he can give me the secret word. And then he stabs him. Yeah. And that's it's a gross, awesome story. The word is ow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the kingdom crumbles. The kingdom of Moab crumbles after Ehud does his thing. Any others? Yeah, King Saul even just acting as a priest. Uh, or oh, yeah. That, you know, and even King Uzziah as well. But just, you know, Saul and his colossal, you know, failures and just thinking he can yeah. do what he has no business doing. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about all of the, the bad examples of usurpers and then comparing those to all the good examples of usurpers, whether it's Moses or whether it's guys like you know, some of the judges, they're not, I shouldn't say they're good examples. That was a bad yeah. word choice there because judges is terrible. But Jesus is the ultimate usurper, right? Yeah. Born into the world, little estate, right? You know, born in a grain bin basically and then grows up and is God in the flesh and Satan thinks he's won the battle and all that that did by killing him was you lose. Yeah. And so then there's this beautiful thing throughout all of scripture that we start to notice some consistent patterns. The bad usurpers are always concerned about pride, arrogance, power, strength. The good usurpers, the ones who topple the major kingdoms or the major powers are always choosing humility, faithfulness, mm. walking with God. And in the middle of that, it, it, I don't know about you, but it gives me a tremendous amount of hope because it doesn't always feel like we have the power or authority I would like the church to have. You know, I like, I know us, I know this place, I know what we're doing and I know people have criticism and that that's just part of being the leadership. You get criticized, right. but I know us and I know who we are and I know what we do and I know our integrity. There's very little reason for someone to not trust us. There's very little reason for someone to think they're out to do something, you know, either against us or in some way. But even though we deserve to have some kind of power and authority, we don't necessarily have it. And we're not, we're also not seeking it. Right. You know, we're not trying to usurp anything or topple some kingdom or something, but I read it and I go, when it feels like I'm out of touch, it's beautiful that in the scriptures, God uses the least likely people Mm -hmm. to topple major powers and major kingdoms and ultimately get his way. And that gives me hope. Yeah. Even what he does with a few fishermen, right? And just to think that we live in a culture where it's hard for me when I see genuine godly believers criticize so intent, intently. But even, you know, just I was reading this week about uh, a young man who was Hindu and and it was a came to Christ and how he was, his family was being harassed and tormented. And it's like, he's just following Jesus. He's just loving. He's not hurting you. And, and they took um, some sort of flammable liquid and threw it on him. And he thought he was just wet at first. And, uh, but it started to burn and he ran, ran home, which was about a half mile. And uh, he, he had burns all over his body and he has since died from it. Mm. And it was because he was a Christian, you know, just because he believed in Jesus. And it doesn't seem right, you know. And it, and you, it's so hard when you know Jesus and you know his love. It, it, you think, why are believers so hated or so criticized in some places or always yeah. the underdogs? And yet, that's who Jesus works with. And 
And we have to remember that we're dealing with a spiritually blind world. Sure. They don't get it. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right. So why are we surprised? We shouldn't be. And Jesus said, they hate me. Yeah. They're going to hate you. Yeah. And so we're, su- we're surprised when these th- moments happen. But what's also interesting about stories like that you just shared or others, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the Elliot's, you know, was Jim Elliott, what's, what yep. was his name? Yep. yep. And, you know, this group of people go to a people group to try to reach them for Christ and they kill them pretty much on site. Well, now that people group is walking with Jesus. Yeah. So even when, even when these stories happen and we are so disappointed and discouraged by the darkness of our world, God uses even the darkest of moments mm-hmm. to bring about light when we're faithful and we trust him and we walk with him. So let's do that. Let's trust him and let's look at stories like Moses and be encouraged that even though we may not see what God is doing, he might be using even the most you know, disastrous of circumstances to ultimately get his kingdom pushed forward and, and his purposes across. Join in with Jesus as he usurps the kingdom of evil. <laughs>